Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to the book of 1 John? And hopefully you picked up the the notes when you came in, um, that sheet of paper. We're going to be using those for the next couple of weeks. I have taken a 10-point sermon and broke it into two five-point sermons. I'm sure all of you will be glad for that. Um, But we will use these notes for the next two weeks. And you guys be praying for trees, okay? Because we killed a lot of trees for those notes today, so... And as you can see, we're going to be studying the book of 1 John about biblical assurance of salvation. And one of the reasons we're doing this is in the next couple of weeks, Mitch is going to begin a series in 1 John about fellowship. And I started to think, I said, you can't have fellowship with one another if you don't first have fellowship with God. Fellowship with one another presupposes fellowship with God. In other words, it does you no good to be a part of the community of faith if you're not in the faith, right? And so what we want to do for the next two weeks, I'm going to give a blimp view of 1 John. And then uh, Mitch is going to come and talk about fellowship among the body of Christ and how important it is to be part of a faith family and, and what that means and He's going to be looking at it on a much closer inspection. We're looking at a broad view of 1 John today. And the reason that I want to do this is because so many people I know who have grown up in the church have struggled so much throughout their lives with doubting whether or not they're in the faith. They doubt whether or not they're a Christian. And part of that is due to us mishandling the gospel. Because what we have done in our culture, especially in the South, is we have reduced the gospel to a sinner's prayer. And we've reduced it to a few spiritual laws. If you say these things, if you believe these things, if you've prayed and asked Jesus in your heart and you've been baptized, then that must mean that you are in the faith. And yet Jesus nowhere in Scripture stands up and says, Behold, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you'll just come and ask me into your heart, I'll save you. Now, obviously, many of you, including myself, may have had a conversion experience where you prayed and you called on the name of the Lord to save you. But what I want to make sure of this morning is that we don't put our faith in a one-time experience, but that our Faith is continually on Christ. And that it's not just that I repented one time a long time ago, but I am continuing to repent even today. It's not just that I believed in Jesus when I was five years old at vacation Bible school, but I am still believing in Him and trusting in Him and clinging to Him even now. And so... We could sum up this entire message by that phrase at the top of your notes this morning. Biblical assurance of salvation does not flow from a past decision or a prayer. But your assurance that you know Christ comes from the examination of your enduring lifestyle in the light of Scripture. 
Now, let me say some things before we get started. I do not intend for this sermon to be behavior modification. If you finish this message and you hear what I say and we go through this test of things to look for in your life to see if you're in the faith. If you read that and say, oh, I'm not a believer. I guess I need to go do these things so I can be saved. If you do that, I'm going to throw my Bible at you. Now, I would throw this at you, but it's a tablet and I don't want to break it. I'll throw my Bible because you've missed the point. The point is not for us to look at these things and say, oh, this is what a Christian does. So I need to go do these things to be a Christian. It's works and it's not the gospel. So I'm not trying to get you to act better. I'm wanting you to turn your eyes to Christ. And there's a second thing that I'm not trying to do this morning. I am not trying to create doubt in your faith in Christ. Because if you're like me, you've been in some services before where the preacher's goal was to see how many people he could get to doubt so that he could have some type of big harvest at the end. That's not the goal this morning. In fact, it's the opposite. My prayer this morning, as we and for the, and for next week, is that as we go through First John, you will have assurance and that you'll have great hope and faith, and you're going to be encouraged. My goal is encouragement, not doubt, because I believe most of us in here are believers. Most of you stood up and came to the table and took communion, claiming that you know Christ. And so my prayer is that you'll be encouraged today. But there may be some of you that may realize for the first time that you're not a believer. And you realize that you, as you examine yourself, as 1 John tells us to, you say, you know what, I, there, there is no evidence that I know Christ. Here's what you should do. Don't look at these things and say, I guess I need to act better. If you fail this test, repent and believe and trust in Christ. Second Corinthians 13:5 says to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know if Jesus Christ is in you? We need to be constantly examining ourselves. And we don't examine ourselves by saying there was a time in my life a long time ago when I had a religious experience and I asked Jesus to save me. The way you examine yourself is you say, is there evidence of fruit in my life right now, currently, that I know Christ? Now, if you look at 1 John, would you turn to 1 John chapter 5? I'm going to start at the beginning, or at the end, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. But 1 John chapter 5. John, when he writes his letters and his books, he usually gives you the reason why he wrote the book. When you read the Gospel of John... You go to the end of the book and John says, I wrote these things so that you would read this stuff about Jesus and believe that he's the son of God and have eternal life. Now, the question is, why did John write first John first John chapter five? Look at verse 13. He says, I write these things to you. What are these things? First John, I write first John to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Just a quick thing. Let me point out. John is writing 
to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Those who claim to have faith. He's not writing to unbelievers. This is a message for believers. I'm writing this to you who claim to believe in the Son of God so that you may hope you have eternal life. No, that's not what it says. That you may know. I have, I've, I've gone to so many churches and, and spoken and preached where the afterward, or I've actually heard preachers say this. Um, they'll say, you got to know that you know that you know that you know that you know. And if you don't know that you know that you know that you know that you know, then you don't know. And I had a kid come up to me after church one day after a preacher had said this, and he was weeping. I mean, this was, this was like a conference, you know, and I was counseling this kid, and he was terrified. And I said, man, what's wrong with you? And he, he said, well, I, I thought I was a Christian, but the preacher said you have to, to know that you know that you know that you know. And, and I thought that I knew, but... But, but then I, I started to think, and then I don't even know if I knew. And then he says, you have to know that you know that you know that you know. And I don't even know if I knew that I ever knew before. And this kid was so confused. I don't want you to be confused this morning. I don't want you to say, well, there, you have to just know that you know that you know that you know. But Scripture says that you can examine yourself and have full confidence that you are in the faith. And that is why John wrote this letter to his children to those who are in the faith, to those who are believers. All right, so we're going to go through this. I'm only going to cover the first five points this morning because I want to take some time as we examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. And I hope this will bring you great encouragement this morning. Let's pray and then let's get into the text. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for our day to come and to worship together and to study your word and to worship in spirit and truth. Father, I ask that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit to speak your word clearly and truthfully, not to lead any of your children astray. And I pray that we will not leave this place with doubt, but that people will know that they have confidence in their faith in Christ. Father, I pray that no one will hear this message and think, I need to change my life so that I can be better. Lord, we are saved by grace through faith, not by what we have done, by but what Christ has done on our behalf. So I pray that our confidence in Jesus will be stronger this morning and our confidence in ourself will be less. I pray that you'll speak through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. First John, let's go back to chapter 1. And I'm not going to look at every single passage um, Mitch is going to do that over the next few months. We're going to be going through this this book. And uh, I want to give us an overview and look at some verses where John gives us these tests. Tests to examine ourselves. Whether you've been in the faith for a year or 50 years, we need to examine ourselves monthly, yearly, weekly, daily. It's a daily audit of our soul to look at our life and say, is there fruit in my life that shows that I'm in the faith? And so we're just going to go through some of these. I'm not going to cover all of them. There are a lot of these tests in First John. We're going to look at 10 of them. We'll look at five today. The first one is uh, in chapter one. Let me begin reading in verse five. John says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The first test, as we've seen in this passage, is that the evidence that we are born again is that we will live in the light rather than continue to walk in darkness. And one of the results of that that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks is that we will enjoy fellowship with other believers. Now we need to define some words here because John uses words like walk and light and darkness and truth We need to define these words. The first thing we need to decide is what does it mean to walk in the light? John is writing in a day where there are these Gnostics who believe in this hidden knowledge that God has hidden himself and and that everything done in the flesh, the flesh is bad, the flesh is sinful, and only things that are spiritual are good. And so you have a group of people living their lives as if it doesn't matter what they do in the body. All that matters is what they do in the spirit. And so John is saying, no, there is a God who has revealed himself. He's, there's not, it's not secret knowledge. He has revealed himself. He's the God of truth. And he is light. And so John uses light and darkness to talk about a few different things. Sometimes light talks about truth. And darkness refers to error or false teaching. Sometimes light refers to purity and righteousness. And darkness refers to sin and error and unrighteousness and wickedness. And so what John is saying, here's this test. If you look at verse 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian this morning, if you say that you're in the faith, while you walk in darkness... You lie and do not practice the truth. This is the first test in 1 John. And the question we need to answer is, what does it mean to walk in darkness? And what does it mean to walk in light? Does this mean that you have to be perfect? Does this mean that you could never stumble, never sin? That Christians have to be perfect in everything that they do? I hope not, right? Because I'm in trouble. And you're in trouble too, if we're going to be honest. What does it mean to walk? The word walk in the Greek is the word peripateo. It means to walk around. It, it means uh, the, a lifestyle. It means the way that you walk in your life. And it talks about a continual walking. If we walk, if we continue to walk, another way that we might put it would be to live. You've heard it said this way. Uh, if you're going to talk the talk, you better Walk the walk. What does walk the walk mean? It means your actions better back up your words. Walk has to do with how you live. And what John is saying is that if you say that you have fellowship with Jesus, if you say that you live in the light, if you say that you know Christ, and yet the overall characteristics of your life is to continue to walk in darkness, you're lying. You're not in the faith. Red flags ought to go up. One of the best ways, I think, to illustrate this 
um, is the difference between uh, a video camera and, and a snapshot camera, like on your phone, just clicking a picture, right? If you wanted to catch me in sin... Just to prove to to Mitch that Josh is unworthy to preach, which I am, but Josh doesn't need to be in ministry. You just got to catch me in sin. What would be the easiest way to provide evidence of my sinful lifestyle? With a snapshot camera or the video camera? It would be easier with the snapshot camera, right? Because all you have to do is you have to go sit in the bushes at my house and wait for it to be cold one day like it's been, and the frost over on my car. And so when I walk outside, I I shut the door, and I try to open the door of my car. I realize that I've locked my keys in the house. I can't get back in. So now I'm mad. I finally get back in the house. My wife lets me in. I get the keys. I go to unlock the door. The door is frozen shut. Now I'm mad because I can't get the door open. My hands are freezing. I've got frostbite. And then the cat, the neighbor's cat walks by and I trip over the cat. So now I'm cussing at the cat. I kick the cat because cats are demon possessed and I can't stand cats. I kick the cat. I'm, I'm, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs at my car. I get in the car. Finally, the car doesn't crank because the battery's dead. And I start to say words that would make anybody blush right and i'm frustrated i kick the cat i'm cussing at the car and all of a sudden you jump out of the bushes with your phone your iphone and say click gotcha and you get me in mid kick of the cat with some obscenity coming out of my mouth and you take that picture and you send it to mitch you put it in his phone number and you text it to him and say look josh is unworthy of ministry he's a sinner he's walking in darkness we just say that's silly, right? Because that's a one instance where I said something I shouldn't have said. I was wrong and I stumbled. And that's not an, a good picture of my life. But if you want to know about me, you want to know about Mitch, if I want to know about your life and whether or not you're walking in darkness or light, I'm going to take a video camera and I'm going to follow you around for a month, three months six months and i'm going to watch the things that you watch and i'm going to listen to the things that you listen to and i'm going to hear the things that you say and i'm going to go the places that you go and i'm going to read the things that you read and i'm going to look at the things you look at and i'm going to know after about six months to a year even three months i will know and we will all know whether or not you are walking in darkness or walking around in light This is not just a one-time, oh, I I, I messed up, I said something I shouldn't have said, I must not be in the faith. If you live that way, you will be miserable. It's not the way that we examine ourselves. This is an overall characteristics characteristics of our life. Is the overall characteristics of my life to, to seek God and to walk in light, to walk in truth, to know the truth, to walk pure, to obey Him? Is that the goal of my life? Or is my mind constantly on how I can fulfill the desires of my flesh? This is not hard. John's writing to children. This is simple stuff, but he wants us to know, if you do walk in the light, if you are seeking Christ, if you are searching His Word for truth, if you're living in that truth, if you're walking in obedience to Him, then you have good reason to believe that you are in the faith. 
And if you are in the faith, there is good news because we have fellowship, not just with one another, but we have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all of our sin. This is good news. This is gospel news. But I don't try to obey God so that he'll forgive my sin. This is evidence, this is fruit that I'm already in the faith. And the way that I know that my sins are forgiven is that if I'm constantly looking to Christ and seeking to obey Him, then that means the Holy Spirit has done such a work in my heart that He has changed my affections to hate the world and to love God. Is that true about you? If we were to follow you for a year and did a reality TV show of your life, what would we see? That's the question for you to answer, not for me. Examine yourselves. See, the question this morning, if you ask somebody, how do you know that you're in the faith? And they'll say, well, I believed. But the question we need to ask is, how do you know this morning that you have truly believed? And one of the ways we know that we've believed is that we are walking and living in the light. There's a big difference in living in darkness and stumbling in darkness. That's the first test. The evidence that we're born again is that we'll live in the light. Second test. Let's go on. Keep, let's just keep reading as we're going. Verse 8. Emmett just read this. I love this passage. So appropriate for today. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Test number two. A true believer will live in constant confession. Confession of his or her sin. By realizing the gravity and the weight of our rebellion towards God. What does this verse mean if we say we have no sin? Does this really mean that are there really people out there who really believe they've never done anything wrong? Actually, there are. I've met a few of them. I had a lady come up to me after church one day and she said, Preacher, I just want you to know that I haven't sinned in the last 40 years. And I thought, ma'am got a little bit of a lying problem, right? And let's be real, right? 40 years? I've heard people say, yes, yeah, since I became a Christian, I, I haven't, I've never told a lie. Had somebody told me that. Are you kidding me? Now, that's an, ex an extreme case. Most people, even the pagans, know that they're not perfect. But what does it mean to say that we have no sin? One instance might be, like Emmett mentioned earlier, it might be the covering of our own sin, trying to cover it up, act like God didn't see it, and act like nobody knows about it. But I think there's another aspect to this. How do you respond when someone confronts you with your sin? The word confession here means to say the same thing as that when you confess sin you are actually it's not that you're confessing every single sin that you've ever committed because you'll never be able to do that 
The truth is we have sinned in so many ways even since we woke up this morning. I couldn't count all the ways that I've sinned. And if you try to confess all your sins, it will drive you insane. That's what happened to Martin Luther during the Reformation. Before he knew the gospel, he just thought that he, his priest told him, Martin, go do something worth confessing, man. You haven't even done anything wrong. And he was just confessing every little thing that he had done. And it was driving him insane. This, this confession of sin doesn't just mean that we're, we're confessing our sins to God. It's our attitude towards sin. And that we should say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. When I come to God and I pray and I confess, it's not that, Lord, I did this, this, and this wrong. It's a confession of, of not just my works, but my nature. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. And I realize that, and, and I don't need to hide it from you because I can't. You know everything about me. I have nothing to hide from you. You know everything about me. And so it would be foolish of me to think that I could hide my sin from you. So I confess my nature, and I confess my need for Christ. I need grace, and I need mercy. I confess who I am. And that's why we come to the table. That's why we take communion every Sunday, not just to remind us of the gospel, but to remind us of our own sinful nature, that we need it. We need grace. We need mercy. And this table is not being offered to you by the church. It's not being offered to you by your pastors or the elders. This table is offered to you by Jesus. And it's his body, it's his blood that he is offering to you. And he says, come and have fellowship with me. But if you approach this table, you approach it in humility, recognizing that you need Christ and you can do nothing in and of yourselves to save yourself. You can't, it is impossible to approach the Lord's table with arrogance. Because the very fact that you get up out of your seat and you walk down this aisle and you take this juice and you take this cracker and you go back to your seat and eat it is a confession that you are wicked and depraved and you need grace from a holy God not to kill you. And I would say that's a little harsh, but that's the truth, right? That's, what he, that's really what we're confessing. I need grace. So here's my question. How do you respond when someone confronts you with sin, because this is, this is much more prevalent, I think. Somebody approaches, approaches you with sin and they say, listen, um, hey Josh, I, I saw you on, on, on Twitter. You said something you shouldn't have said. And, and man, the way you were talking to Jenny the other day, your wife, I, I, that just wasn't godly. And man, I've just been really concerned about, about the, some of those things. And I just love you and I wanted to just tell you about that. I want to pray for you and... And I just want you to honor Christ with your life. Uh, if I respond like a lot of people respond if they're ever confronted with sin. You ever heard anybody say this? Nuh-uh. I didn't do that. Instant defense, right? The wall comes up immediately when someone confronts them. And they say, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't sinned. Who do you think you are? Thou shalt not judge. Judge not lest you be judged. They just, and I say yes and quote not scripture. Uh, don't misquote scripture lest you be like Satan, right? Don't take it out of context. That's not what that verse means. But they'll say things like that. Don't judge. You can't judge me. How dare you confront me about my sin? You think you're perfect? And it's that attitude that 
I have done nothing wrong. And in that moment, when a person is defensive, they're saying, I have not sinned. And not only are they a liar, but verse 10 says that they're calling Jesus himself a liar. How should you respond? A true believer, you know how a true believer is going to respond? If, you're, if, if, if I'm in the faith and somebody confronts me about my sin, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I, let me examine myself. Let me see if, if I've done anything wrong. I'm sorry. I repent. And let me go make it right with my wife. Let me go make it right with, with my friends. Let me go make it right with the cat that I kicked the other day or whatever. Let me go make it right. Let me repent. This is all part of living in fellowship with one another. As a member of this church, you are giving the right to other believers to approach you about your sin. Because if they love you, they're going to come to you and approach you and confront you. And if you're in the faith, you're going you're gonna to treat that as, you know what, you might be right. If I've sinned, I, I'll repent. And if I don't believe that I have, if, if my, I'll pray and seek the Lord. And if it's not true, then, then I'll, I'll keep on. But I'll be watching out for that. Thank you for caring about my soul. It's the defensive person where the red flag needs to go up. And let's just be honest. It's not fun if somebody confronts you about your own sin. It hurts, but surgery hurts too, right? But it's a lot better getting cancer out of your body than to say, I'm afraid of the knife. Cut me open, get it out. It's going to be painful, but I need that pain for healing. If, as a member of, of the body of Christ, we need each other to confront us of sin. And if we love one another, we're not going to throw it back in their face and be defensive. That's number two. Your attitude towards sin is that you will be in confession of your sinful nature and you will not be defensive if you're confronted, but you will look for opportunities to repent. That's the third. That's the second test. Number three. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 3. Third test. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep His commandments. This is real simple. These notes are not profound, by the way. You probably guessed that already. Number three. If we love Christ, we will keep His commandments. And here's what that means. Look at verse six. Or I'm sorry, verse four. Whoever says, I know Him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is all under the umbrella of number three. We'll keep his commandments and we will walk and live as Jesus walked. In the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just a real quick poll. How many of you claim to love Jesus this morning? You can raise your hand. Four of you. Great. All right. For the rest of you. Oh, there you are. Okay. If you really love Jesus, your desire this morning should be to obey him. 
Obedience is better than sacrifice. That's what Samuel told Saul, right? Here's the question. When you read the Bible, are you looking for loopholes to see how you can get around what it says? Or are you looking at it to say, what did Jesus say and how can I obey what he said? It's really your attitude to Scripture. Are you looking for the the easy way around? Or are you like David and say, your, your law, I meditate on your law. It is so good to me. I love your precepts. I meditate on Scripture. Your lo- the law, the rules, I love this, Lord. This is good to me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I love Scripture. I love your word. Is your desire to obey Jesus or to find some way around doing what he said? I have godly parents and I grew up in the church and I remember several times in church and, and some of you may have had this experience before, something similar. Um, I would misbehave in church, right? You've heard this story before. Uh, it might be your own story. And I would misbehave in church and, and, and our, you know, my, my mom or my dad would get on to me and it was always the deacon's kid's fault, right? Because it was their fault. And I'm sitting next to this other kid and we started to goof off and, and stuff and my dad would say, son, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to take you outside and, and you're going to get it. And I didn't know what it was, but it didn't sound very good. And, and, and just being the little kid that I was, I kept goofing off and misbehaving. And finally, my dad would take me outside. And, and you know where all this leads. This leads to, to, the, to the whipping. But I get out there and I get on my knees in the parking lot and I say, oh, daddy. I love you. That's the sound I heard right before my dad spanked me, right? <laughs> Daddy, I love you. And he said, I said, I love you too, son. Now bend over. And then he, he took his belt off and he spanked me. And I said, I told him I loved him, right? What happened to this? And he said, Josh, if you really love me, you're going to do what I say. But then we get to this verse 6. This gives me trouble. Because it says, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way he walked. Uh, anybody see a problem with that? Here's the problem. Jesus is perfect, right? So how do you be perfect like Jesus is perfect? Here's what I think this means. How many of you remember the blizzard of 1993, right? Okay, I was there, got the t-shirt, right? I was probably, how old was I, nine or ten years old? There was probably a foot and a half, almost two feet of snow all over the southeast. Incredible blizzard. And I remember our power was out for over a week, and, and, and so we had to go outside and, and get firewood. And I've always looked up to my dad, and I love my dad, and we would go outside, just me and him, and we're walking out in the woods, and we're going to get firewood. And in the snow, uh, my dad would make these huge footprints, or they were big footprints to me. I was just a little fella. And if you're like me, I have a little bit OCD, and if I'm ever walking behind somebody in the snow, I have to put my foot where they put their foot, or my whole universe falls apart, right? I just... You know, you can't, that was the game to me. Put my foot where my dad put his. The problem was, I was a small little guy. And, and my legs weren't big enough to, to get 
into the steps where he was. So I was stumbling around. I was falling in the snow. I was making a mess of my dad's footprints. And if you were, if you were looking at a distance, you would have said, I don't know that boy. I don't know anything about him. And he's making a mess in the snow. But there is no doubt that that little boy's greatest desire is to walk like his father is walking. If we looked at your life, would people say that about you? And here's the truth. If you try to walk like Jesus walked, you're going to make a mess of it. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. But when people look at your life, do they say the greatest desire of his life and her life is to walk like Jesus is walking? She's not perfect. She messes up. But she's doing her best to walk like Jesus is walking. This is not a desire to please God. It's not doing it out of a desire so that God will love us more. We're doing it because we love him. It's a child imitating the father. This is what I think it means. To walk as Jesus walked. And to keep his commandments. To obey him. Let's look at number four. If we go on to chapter two. Verse 15. We'll look at two more this morning. Chapter two verse 15. He says. Do not love the things. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world. The love of the father. Is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse number four is really simple. Christians should not love the world's systems, values, desires, or possessions. And this is a hard one for us living in the United States of America because we got a lot of stuff and we like our stuff. And I say this as I'm preaching out of a Bible that's that's a really nice Bible and a, and a, and a tablet that was a gift for Christmas. I, I like this, right? It's just nice stuff to have. And this is an old saying, but it's, it needs to be said again. The issue is not that we own nice things. It's when our nice things own us, Right? It's when the things of this world have the affections of our heart. And we're more concerned. A good test of this is, would I be more upset if I were to lose access to the Bible or if I lost my tablet or cell phone? You know, like what would make me more upset? Um, I don't want to be legalistic about it. And, you know, that's not what I'm saying, that if we have nice things, then it's sinful. It's not. But Jesus is really clear that you can't serve God and money at the same time. In my Bible study that I have with college students, we're studying the Gospel of John. And this week we're going to be studying John chapter 12, where Mary washes uh, or uh, anoints Jesus with this very costly perfume and takes her hair and wipes Jesus' feet. And then Judas speaks up and says, Lord, we could have used this for money. We could have sold this and given it to the poor. And this is about $25,000 worth of perfume in a bottle, right? This is expensive stuff. And what John is talking about is that Mary realized the true worth of Jesus. 
And everything in the world compared to Jesus meant nothing to her. Whereas Judas did not see the true worth and value and glory of Jesus. And so his mind was on his money. Judas is blinded to the glory of Jesus. And if your desire for the things of this world is greater than your desire to know Christ, it is suicidal. Just ask Judas. And you have Mary who realizes the worth of Christ. Be careful. Be careful, church. That's the warning here. Be careful that your eyes are not constantly looking at the next newest gadget. The best thing coming out. The biggest TV. The newest car. The nicest home. Those things are nice to have. It's okay. But don't let those things grab your heart and steal you away from Christ. It's a dangerous thing. Paul tells Timothy that many, many people have been led astray by the desire for possessions and the desire for money. It is a very powerful God, little G. Be careful, church. This morning, maybe we should examine where do I put my, my, my possessions on the list of important things. And this isn't just for you. This is for... Joshy poo, right? This is for me. I need this. I need to look at my stuff and look how I'm spending my money and look at my house and look at everything that I own and say, do these things take my affections away from Christ? There's only so many ways you can say that. It's really simple. I just don't want us to skip over this. Let's look at the fifth one. To me, this is one of the most convicting Because I see this a lot. And a lot of my friends who've grown up in church. 1 John 2. Verse 18. Children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They, I teach a Bible study class, it's, it's shorter, and one of the things we do is we identify pronouns, Mitch would say this too, who are they? The Antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Let me give you the notes and then let me explain this. True believers will endure faithfully until the end. This is a loaded statement. True believers will endure faithfully to the end by continuing in fellowship with a local church where the gospel is being preached. This is my definition of a church. Very broad definition. The gospel is being preached. God is worshipped. The triune God, we might say. God is worshipped. The sacraments are administered. Lord's Supper, baptism. And local and world evangelization occur. That's my definition of the church. So a true believer... 
is someone who endures to the end. This is what Jesus says. Those who endure to the end will be saved. And the way that I believe we endure to the end and evidence that we're enduring to the end is that we will continue in a local community of faith. And that church is defined by the gospel being preached. The worship of God takes place. The baptism and Lord's Supper is administered. And the gospel is taken to the local community and to the nations. The desire is for the gospel to be taken to the uttermost parts of the world. But what's going on here in John? John says there were people who were with us for a while. They claimed to be Christians. And they went out from us. And if they had truly belonged to us, they would have continued with us in the faith. But they went out from us to show everyone and to make it plain that they never, ever belonged with us. One of my greatest frustrations is that we have not held Christians accountable and, and part of this is where church discipline takes place. And I'm thankful for being in a church where church discipline is something that's important. But here's what's happened. And you've seen it before. People come to church. And I had friends like this who grew up in the church. And, and, and they made public professions of, of, their, uh, of, of knowing Christ at an early age. Maybe at a vacation Bible school or something. And then when they finally got old enough to make their own decisions. And mom and dad wasn't making them come to church anymore. They stop coming. And if you go to their house and they say, I, I don't need to come anymore. I don't, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with it. It's boring. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And then their mom or their dad will just will say, oh, I, I, I don't know what's wrong with him. He, he hasn't been in church for five years. He's, he's living like a pagan. But I know he's a Christian because he asked Jesus in his heart a long time ago. He's got to be in the faith. I, I just, I, he's just backslidden. He's just falling away. And, and we just need to bring him back. I want to be sensitive here because I realize there may be a parent here who may have a child like that. And let me just say that one of the good news, the, the good things of the gospel is that God is not dead and that he's still living and he's still working in people's lives and that people can fall away and God can restore them and bring them back. But let us not be deceived to see a person living in 30 years of continual habitual sin and everybody makes excuses for them and saying, well, I know a long time ago he said he was a Christian, so he must be all right. And then 30 years later, he's still living like the devil. Let's not make excuses for them. John does not say that those people are backslidden. He doesn't say that they're, they're falling away. He says they are antichrists. Against Jesus, they were never a part of the faith. Now let me say this. We don't go around like the gospel police making definitive statements about people who are not in the church and say, well, you're not in the church, you must not be a Christian. Because the truth is, you can be in the church and still not be a believer. But one of the evidences that you're in the faith is that you're going to 
you're going to want to be in a fellowship of, of faith. You're going to want to be with other believers. You're going to desire to be with other Christians. You're going to want to come to church every Sunday and hear somebody preach the Bible and preach the gospel. You're going to want to be in a place where people want to worship God. You're going to want to be in a place where you take the Lord's Supper to remind yourself of your sin and God's salvation. You want to be in a place where people are being baptized to confess their faith. And you want to be in a place where there is a mission among the body of Christ to take the gospel, not not just to Rome, Georgia, but to all nations, to make Jesus known. If you're a believer, that's where you want to be. And if that's not your desire, if you have no desire to be a part of the body of Christ, then you're probably not a member of the body of Christ. Red flags should go up. And you should examine yourself. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir because you're here this morning, Right? I'm so grateful for so many college students who come when mom and dad's not making them get up. That's a blessing to me. Love to see that. Are you in the faith? Examine yourself. These are only five. We'll go, we'll go through the rest of them next week. But listen, let me say this. This is not behavior modification. Don't. Don't walk out of here saying, well, I must not be a Christian, so that means I need to start living better, confessing more sin, uh, trying to obey Jesus, um, giving away all my stuff, and coming to church more. If I do that, that must mean I'm a Christian. No. If you're not in the faith, if you find, if you find in your life that there is absolutely no evidence that you know Christ, repent and look to Jesus. Put your faith in Him. And I hope this morning that most of you look at these things and you say, you know what, I'm not doing this perfectly, but there is great assurance in my heart that I know Christ. I'll tell you this and then I'll, I'll, I'll close. A couple of years ago, it's almost been two years, can't believe how fast time goes by. My, my grandfather passed away. He had had several strokes, He'd been in the hospital. My granddad was a godly man. He had been the chairman of deacons at the church right across the street at Calvary Baptist Church. He's the one who installed the bell tower you hear every morning when you come into church. He did that so his grandchildren would remember to think about Christ and to think about, uh, think about the Lord, to be reminded of those things. He did so much for that church across the street. And I grew up there and I loved that church and I loved him and so grateful for having a godly grandfather to, to, to raise up a godly daughter, which was my mom, who has raised me to know Jesus. But I remember being in the hospital just before he was about to die. He had lost his strength. Half of his body had been paralyzed. He, could, he couldn't even articulate what he wanted to say anymore. He had lost control of his, of his mouth. He couldn't speak. And my family and I, just, just a few moments before he passed away, had some sweet moments with him. We started to sing hymns together and just rejoice over his life. And I'll never forget taking his hand. And one of the songs that ministered to me and our family during that time was written by a blind woman, Fanny Crosby. The first person she ever saw was Jesus, which would be pretty cool. She wrote this song. We took, I took my granddad by the hand and, and I'm watching his life drifting away. So thankful that he knows Christ. We sang this old hymn. Blessed assurance 
Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation. I'm purchased of God. I'm born of His Spirit. I'm washed in His blood. And then all the nurses started singing in. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And just a few moments later, he was gone. And his last breath here was his first breath there. And he had assurance that he knew Christ. And he died, and we don't weep like those who weep without hope. We have hope and assurance that if you know Christ, that the first The last breath here is the first breath there. I told my Bible study last week, until God is finished with you on this planet, you are immortal. And the moment that He's done with you, you're eternal. Let nothing stop you from serving Christ. Examine yourself. And if you're in the faith this morning, celebrate that you know Jesus, not by what you've done, not by your good works, but by what Christ has done on your behalf. So this morning, let us stand and worship and sing, lifting up our eyes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let me pray for us, and then we will celebrate and worship. Let's pray. Father... Thank you so much for the good news of 1 John. This is not meant to give us doubt, Lord. You gave us these words to give us encouragement. I pray for our church this morning that we would look at our lives and look for evidence and fruit. And if there is fruit there, then let's praise you and let's worship you and give you thanks because all of that fruit was produced by you, by your Spirit. And Lord, if there's somebody this morning who may not be in the faith and they've examined themselves, I pray that they'll take this seriously and and that they won't try to look back at a one-time moment, but look at a present reality. Are they right now repenting of sin and looking to Jesus, the only one who can save them? Lord, if that's true, I pray you would give them the gift of repentance. Bring them to faith this morning. And that they may have true biblical assurance that they know Christ. For those of us in the faith, Lord, help us to worship in spirit and truth with great joy and encouragement that we know Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.